Hi, Joe. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you today? Oh, not bad. It's super hot in Nashville, so I'm trying to stay indoors. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into some kind of more technical stuff, maybe could you start by telling us how you came to work with Benfolds and kind of a bit about your career over time? Yeah, well, I um, well, first off, I'm, I'm originally from Massachusetts, and I moved to Nashville in 1993, and um, I um, I had actually worked at a, um, a studio in Boston while I lived there called Synchro Sound. It was, uh, it had been recently, you know, it been, used to be owned by the cars. And, um, and so I worked there for a couple of years. And when I moved to Nashville, I just kind of started again. I didn't really know many people here. So I started, um, you know, interning and, and assisting. And I, I started at a couple studios. One was Treasure Isle and one was House of David. And they're both still here. And uh, I met a couple of engineers. One was Tom Harding and another one was Joe Baldridge. And I started working kind of with them more exclusively, but I also would get hired by the studios as well to assist and engineer. And um, so as time went on, it was, you know, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. And I was doing you know, more engineering and less assisting. And we, uh, I had a mutual friend. I still uh, have this mutual friend. His name is John Painter. And uh, he used to work a lot with Ben. And Ben had just gotten RCA Studio A. He had just leased the space and basically uh, put a console in and had it wired. And he told me, he said, you know, I've been doing some engineering for Ben, and but he's going to need somebody that could be there more often because John does a lot of stuff. He does arranging and producing and all that kind of stuff. And he can play, you know, a thousand instruments. So he just has a lot, a lot going on. So, uh, we, so I, he introduced me to Ben and then I just kind of started working with him. Um, I would say maybe around 2002, somewhere in there, 2003, he was just starting to record. He had done three EPs around that time. And he was just starting to work on those EPs. So he was basically playing all the instruments himself. And um, yeah, that's when I kind of just, I met him and I started going over there. And then we just kind of did stuff all the time. Basically, he always had something going on. So that's how I, long story of how I met Ben. Great. Just to get into the kind of geekier side of it, possibly when a lot of people think of Ben, they think of piano. What are some yeah. of your favorite ways of recording piano? And has it kind of changed per album or has it kind of stayed the same a lot? Well, it, it, you know, it depends. With Ben, I, I do something fairly standard with with any piano, and if it's and if it's going to be stereo, um, I, I prefer large diaphragm condensers. With, with Ben, we would we would try. He he's very he's very um, involved with the recording process, and he he likes to try all kinds of things. But our sort of quote unquote standard thing we would do is he had. Um, he had these CMV, these Neumann CMV 563 microphones, and um, they have the M7 capsule in their tube mics. I, I don't know what year they are from the 60s at some point. And so I, I would do a pair of those and always stick my head in the piano just to sort of hear where all the energy is coming from. I don't like just to do low and high because, you know, sometimes people are playing, they never play up in the upper register. So you have kind of a lopsided stereo image so i i just stick my head in there and just see kind of what's going on and um you know i'll I'll space my my mics that way but that being said 
Ben has his own particular sound. It's the way his piano sounds, the way he plays. I mean, he plays his chord choices, his voicings. He He's a hard player. He's the only piano player that I know of that I've worked with personally that breaks piano strings. So he's like extremely forceful. So he has his own tone on a piano and, and um, he had this particular Steinway B that sounded fantastic. And it's funny, I've heard him on other pianos and the piano just, it, you know, no pun intended, it just would fold up under him because he's just, the way he hits, it just wouldn't respond to him. So um, he, he's got his own sound himself. And so the combination of his type of piano and his playing would lend itself to, you know, a spaced, you know, large diaphragm kind of Neumann variety uh, microphone. But with with other other players, it's interesting. Um, it just depends. Some some players play lighter, um, you know, and then some, you know, sometimes I'm working on pianos that are really bright. And so, you know, I'll switch over to ribbons instead. Uh, um, so I, I don't know. It kind of depends on the player and all that. But with Ben, that was kind of like our standard thing. Every once in a while, he'd want to try something else, you know. Um, but basically, we would just kind of stick to that and get going. You mentioned he would play a lot of the instruments himself. Did you have a kind of standard working kind of way where he would start with a particular instrument and then go along to kind of another standard one? Or Yeah, well, on those EPs, he would, yeah, he would be his own rhythm section. He's an amazing, a lot of people don't know this, but he was, he was actually a percussionist drummer first before piano. So he, um, that was kind of his main, main instrument. He's a fantastic drummer. And um, he's an amazing bass player too. I think he was a gigging bass player at some point. Um, so, but yeah, what he would just depending on the song. He sometimes he would just start with drums, and and a lot of times he wouldn't even use a click. His his timing is ex- excellent. So sometimes he would just start playing drums and then put a piano on top of it, and then quickly put a bass, and then realize, oh, you know what, it needs to be slower. Let me just start again, and then he. he kind of go in circles sometimes he'd start with the piano part and then do drums to it and then bass and then he would say you know oh i'm you know i'm playing too much on the piano so let me let me redo that uh and then i can you know let's mute the bass for now because that's not going to make any sense so we would he would kind of just go in circles either way it would, it would either start with piano or drums depending on what mood he was in and uh finally he'd get a rhythm track that he was he was cool with sometimes he'd put a a vocal on top of it um, and then realized that something wasn't right and we'd start all again, you know? So sometimes it would be a, a day or two later and we'd just re-record it all again. But, but yeah, it would, it would go either direction until he got it and usually no click. Were you working on Pro Tools at this point or was it still tape? We, let's see, it was tape. Um, he had a Studer 800 when I started working with him and that morphed into a radar for a while. And so we, we did, uh, his three EPs were on Radar, and the Songs for Silverman album was on Radar, and uh, we did a, he produced a William Shatner record that we did in RCA Studio A, and that was on Radar. And I think we moved over to Pro Tools, let's see, we moved over to Pro Tools, he, he did a, um, he did some songs for a, um, for a, a DreamWorks movie called Over the Hedge. And um, that's when we switched over to Pro Tools. But before that, it was we. Did, I did. I worked a lot on Radar for a few years. 
there was a small window where we went from the Studer 800 to radar, and then it was radar, for, I think, for like a few years at least. What was the kind of standard drum recording that you were doing with him? Oh, again, he would want to try all kinds of stuff. And in fact, um, RCA Studio A is a pretty big room, but it's not a, it doesn't, um, I heard someone explain it once and they're completely right. It, it's almost like you're playing outside. It's, it's, it doesn't give you a lot back, but it's just, it's a big space, but it's not completely dead either. So we would try stuff, um, just placement, you know, middle of the room, off to one side in the room, under a, there's like, um, uh, if you've ever, you know, see photos or like there's, there's uh, some ISO booths and there's stairs that go over the ISO booths and then the stairs go kind of like it's like a little bridge and it goes to a door upstairs. And so we put the drums kind of under that bridge to kind of give some reflection. Um, and then a lot of times we ended up towards the end, we ended up just putting them in the drum booth because they were pretty dead, but they sounded cooler in the track. But sometimes it would be... Uh, Let's see. There were times I would do a pair of um, Neumann M582s with the Omni capsule, and that we did that on the Shatner record. And when you're playing super lightly, and um, not necessarily super lightly, but it, it gives you a lot of definition with the overheads and and being out in that room. Even in that room, it 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 kind of made the room shine in the overheads a bit. So, you know, I chose Omnis. I don't usually use Omnis on overheads, but we would try that. And he may have even said, Hey, let's try those. Um, nothing, nothing fairly, fairly complicated, you know, like, a some sort of like a beta 52 or a D one twelve and the kick and, uh, you know, the 57 on the snare and four twenty ones on the toms and, um, pair of rim mics would have been, a pair of Omni something, whatever. Um, but different, yeah, I mean, on the So There record, I did and I did a mono overhead with that. Um, it was just always something different. You know, sometimes I would just use some coals for the overheads. It's just, and a lot of times he would just be kind of like what mood he was in. So <laughs> we would try, I, you know, he'd say like, I think, um, you know, I think we, this, this drum, you know, this drum sound should be kind of ribbony. So, okay. Um, and he also had a Collins, um, you know, tube radio sort of console that was modified. And there, I know there was one project where he's like, I want to try putting the drums all through that. So we did that and that was cool. So it's like never, it's kind of like stream of consciousness, you know, just kind of whatever. No stand, no really standard thing. Did you generally leave things set up if he was going to move in quickly between different instruments for every song? Yeah, yeah, especially when it was his own private studio, we would just leave things. I would never really break. I would only break things down if it was going to be he was going to be gone for a while and maybe there was going to be something completely new that we were going to do, but other than that, yeah, I would leave like drum kit set up and piano with mics on them and U47 in the middle of the room somewhere and you know, his his tack piano, I would leave that mic'd up and a bass set up. So, yeah, cuz he likes to move fast when he's when he's coming up with stuff. So, that's the best way to keep things moving could you think about the time we used the least amount of mics on the drum kit um let's see least amount oh probably i'm trying to remember i it probably was the so there record and it was probably 
Um, I'm trying to remember which song it was. It might have been the song called So There. He ended up playing drums on it. Um, I think I think it might have been... A, I've, I've been really liking the, the, the Mike Tech CB3s on overheads, and I had just gotten one of them, and I wanted to try it, and it sounded great as a mono overhead. I think it was... I could be wrong, but I think it was just that and a kick drum mic. And uh, I may have had a snare drum mic, probably didn't use it, and like a, a room mic far away. And he, he mixes himself when he plays drums so well that you, you could really get away with not not much of anything. Have you noticed any big differences in the recording and the kind of mixing process if you're just doing it like that with Ben, kind of one thing at a time compared to if you're doing like a full band thing there all in the room? It, it Yeah, it just depends. I mean, you, you know, you, different different people play differently. I, I know that um, he's really great about arrangement, so usually the mixes, it, it's usually easy to mix. And um, and when he when he would – this is now this is a while ago, so he, he it's been a while since he's played, kind of played everything, but – I do remember it being like extra easy to mix because he, you know, the, he gets a great drum tone. Like I said, he mixes himself. He, he gets a great bass tone. His piano sounds cool. Everything just kind of fits. And he knows, especially when he's playing piano, he knows that if he's playing too much on the low end, it's going to be a nightmare to mix. And he, he'll even think of that ahead of time. And he'll kind of, he's even said that before he says, Oh, you know, I'm being a jackass. Uh, and um, basically, I don't need to play that much in the low end and that's going to be a pain for you to mix. So let me go back out and fix that and he'll do it. And he's right. And it's just, you know, I can, I can throw up the faders pretty quick. So, um, but even, you know, even the band stuff, you know, the, the band he had, um, after Ben folds five, they all, they all sounded great, you know, and he, and the arrangements were always great. They'd always work them out. And, and then the reunion record we did with, Ben Folds Five, that's a different sound. And they, they play differently, but yet that was fairly easy to mix too because it would just, you know, all the arrangements are worked out. The intensity is different with that band, um, but still it's all it's all cool, you know. If you're moving quickly like that, were you processing on the way in or were you generally leaving it for later? Uh, I like I still like to process on the way in. I like to try to get my sound as close as possible that I don't have to do so much when I'm mixing. You know, I like with drums, I don't like to super, you know, brighten them unless we're going for something like that. I mean, I like to get them kind of natural and cool sounding where I'm happy with them knowing later that I, you know, I may amp them up a little bit or maybe brighten them a little bit, but I, I do try to get them like at least halfway there to where, to where it, if it just sat there, it would be totally cool. And I could leave the option for later when I, when I'm working on tape, I, um, I go for it a lot more. Because um, especially on tape, the high end will start going away, you know, the more you do overdubs. And so I I can actually, it's funny, I I don't do stuff on tape much anymore, but I have done a couple records on tape in the past couple years. And I had to rearrange my thinking again because I actually would cut things a little brighter, especially drums, to, um, to tape because even the next day it mellows out. So I know I can get away with just an extra click of like, okay, I know this sounds a little bright going down, but you start working on it the next day and it's like, ah, it's perfect. You know, and it kind of leaves you less room for a ton of, you know, you won't have as much noise to deal with. Um, Although people like noise now, so (laughs) maybe it's not that big of a deal. 
What are some of your favorite bass recording methods? Well, you know, I basically, I there's a few ways. I you know, I always take a DI, and uh, you know, there's there's usually a bass amp involved, and if it's a if it's more of a standard bass amp, like a you know, like a B15 or a B12 or some other SVT or something like that. Uh, when it comes time to, I'll, I'll take both, try to figure out the phase because the phase is never quite, you know, it could, sometimes it could be one or the other depending on the way you're going to mix it. Um, and if I am mixing it, I usually will choose one or the other. I won't use both because it never feels right to mix both in for me. That being said, lately I've been taking a DI and, and not using a standard bass amp. Um, lately, I've, you know, there's been a couple of projects where I've been using this little tiny, um, it's like a Marshall solid state. Like it's small. I, I can't, the speaker might even be like a 10 or something like that. I don't, I don't know, but it, it breaks up in a cool way and you can get it to fuzz out. And I, that, that I will combine with the DI cause that's just adding some harmonic distortion. So that's cool. I did try one technique, um, once that I heard from um, Andy Johns on some sort of interview I was watching. It was actually really cool, and I'm going to start using it again. I, I tried it once, and it's awesome. And if you take the DI, and um, if you can with your bass amp, if you're in some sort of a room where you can do this, use um, use a mic that you can put in figure eight, whether it's a ribbon or, you know, it's a, a condenser that you can select figure eight, and back it off from the amp. I don't know, four or five feet, I think. And I think I did about four. Yeah, it was about that, four or five feet. And um, this way, you'll be able to combine it with your DI, and it won't have any phasing issues. Now, the times I have done that, I've had to flip it out of phase because it's been 180 degrees out. But it doesn't cause that strange little, you know, kind of 90 degree out of phase timing issue. And it'll sound kind of weird on its own. It won't sound great. You kind of bring it up. It could sound, I don't know, but it's like, it's not meant to be by itself. But when you do mix it in with the, uh, with the DI, it does give that harmonic um, dimension to it without causing any phasing. So I've only done that once or twice, and that's been a couple of years now. And that, that's a good way to combine them if you want. But I mean, usually it's just like, it's one or the other for me. And, you know, sometimes the DI is awesome. Sometimes the amp is the way to go. And, you know, I'll just kind of pick one. I think that figure eight technique was got a common Beatles one as well later on. Yeah, it's it's really uh, you know he's. He, I saw this interview and I thought oh, that's pretty cool. And I happened to be working on something in the next week that I was able to do that. I had the you know I think I had it isolated good enough or you know another room I can't quite remember. I was like let me try this and I backed it off and the <laughs> bass player was like whoa what is that and I was like oh, it's, it's like a technique I just heard about <laughs> so <laughs> totally totally cool yeah. Working in a big room like that, were you generally just using the room ambience for a lot of your kind of depth, or were you relying on other reverbs as well? Um, you know, Dave, if, if we were close miking, it would be other reverbs. There's um, there's a song. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It was a, it was for a movie, and it was called. Uh, it starred Alicia Witt, and she, it was called Cold. I think it was called Cold Turkey. I think it was, but they did her and Ben did a duet and it was the theme for the, for the theme for the movie. And that was one of the ones where he, 
wanted to try that Collins tube console. Um, the, the Collins tube console, the way it's set up, you know, it's from the fifties and it's meant for ribbon mics. So they have a bunch of big knobs, but they're, the, the knobs are basically attenuators. You crank it all the way up. It's zero. It's unity. And the, the mic pre's are fixed. I think it's like 50 or 60 dB a gain. So later on when we started using that, I started using selectable pads so you could actually use, you know, you can get your mics close. But at the time we didn't have that. And he said, well, let's try, you know, let's try this drum kit with this stuff. So I really had to back the mics off quite a bit to make it work. But the side effect was that of that was it gave the room dimension got sucked in <laughs> to the sounds of everything. So in, in that case, it really was awesome. You were forced in a way to to record that way, and the byproduct was that it just um, the room dimension sounded awesome. So um, that room in particular, you could get away with a lot because you could really back things off. It wasn't a very live room, but it was a beautiful sounding room. So you could back things off. You could have a singer out there with a ribbon mic. Um, you know, you could hear bits of the room, but it sounded pleasing. And, you know, I, I would never really cut vocals out there with any kind of baffles because it didn't. I didn't mind that I could hear some of the room in there because it just added to it. So in some ways, yeah, you would get the dimension of it. And other times, you know, there'd be close mic stuff. So I might add little bits of reverb here and there. Have you got about acoustic guitars? It's kind of some of your favorite mics techniques. Um, I don't, and I don't do stereo. I just, it's usually mono, and um, depends on the situation. I, I again, I really love the um, the mic tech, the mic tech CV3. It's 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 got a high end sort of lift kind of built into it that sounds really smooth. So I don't feel like I don't have to EQ anything, and um, and that particular mic especially if you're doing a, 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 an acoustic vocal, that particular mic, when you put it in figure eight um, on the, the null points of the figure eight, it, it, it almost completely goes away. It, it, it's awesome. It's kind of like a 414 in that way where you can just like, you know, I would use that an acoustic guitar and point the, the figure eight null point at the person's mouth and then put like an SM7 or something like that up there. And you can almost hear basically the vocal in the acoustic mic, which is usually your problem. Um, you know, it almost sounded kind of like headphone bleed, which is kind of nice. And it's just a good sounding mic. I mean, there's stuff like that. I just did a record recently where I used an M160, the buyer M160 on the acoustic guitar, and it sounded fantastic. Um, let's see. Yeah. That just nothing really, nothing really crazy. You know, it's either a ribbon or a, or a condenser. And, you know, sometimes, a 57 is nice. If you have a bunch of, I did something, uh, a project once on one song where they kind of wanted everyone in the room, uh, doing this one song and it was drums and like three acoustic guitars and this sort of thing. And I was like, well, I know two of these acoustic guitars are going to get 57s and it was great. You know, they sounded awesome and um, you know, the drums didn't fly into the acoustic as much as it would have with a condenser. So that's a great sound too, but yeah, nothing, nothing too earth shattering. What are some of your kind of most used EQs for tracking? Um, yeah, API um, 560Bs. And um, I've just gotten into these Kush audio um, EQs, and I'm spacing on the name of them. In fact, I actually have them right here. They are called, as I look at my 
Let's see here. That's how new they are to me. Electras. And uh, I just got a pair of those, and they're absolutely amazing. They, um, When you do any kind of EQ adjustments, it almost feels like you've moved the mic to a better position rather than just kind of corrected it with EQ. So uh, there was, I was trying them out, and um, one of the, uh, the thing I was working on, the, the, the inside bass drum mic had like almost no low end to it. And I was like, well, I'll, let me try this EQ on this thing. And I cranked all the low end, and it, it sounded like I adjusted something on the drum. It almost sounded like I, you know, we used a different bass drum, or, or I tuned it a little differently, or I pulled some of the padding out. It didn't sound like I added a ton of EQ to something that didn't have that low end. So it's very, it's very interesting EQ, and I'm still kind of getting used to them because I, I haven't heard anything like that before. But um, so that's sort of a new thing for tracking. But it, you know, it's, it's I'm so used to API stuff. It's yeah, 560Bs, um, 550As, you know, basically, and um, you know, some of the Neve stuff occasionally. You know, 1073s, it's cool. But yeah, I usually have API stuff in front of me, so that's and that's I'm most used to that from growing up around API stuff. What are some of your most used compressors generally? Oh, um, of course, 1176 and LA2As, and I have a pair of LA3As that I love. And um, that's sort of the deal. And I love distressors. And I think that's, unless I'm forgetting something. Oh, that I've been getting into the Spectrosonics um, compressor lately, and I don't usually... I don't usually compress drum stuff um, when I'm tracking. Sometimes, you know, usually the room, I'll do the rooms or, or something, something that I want to really be affected that I can bring in um, and really, you know, change the dimension of the sound. But the individual mics, you know, I, I don't, it's, I'm just not, you know, something I don't do. And, but there is a, uh, there've been a couple projects where I have used a mono overhead um, like a U67, and um, and I always paired that with a Spectrosonic 610, and um, and just kind of tapping it, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> so uh, I don't own one of those, but I have um, I have a friend who has a pair of them. He actually has five of them, and um, that there's a pair in a rack that you know I basically borrow. If he's not using them, I can just use them. So I actually have been getting, uh, getting around those pretty nice, pretty, pretty well. And they're, um, there's nothing like those either. So <laughs> they're kind of fun to work with. I, I learn something new about them every time I use them. Are you using them in the kind of super fast mode they're known for or more kind of laid back? Uh, you know, I've been using them lately. I've just been using them in the, yeah, the super fast where the slope is all the way to the right. I've been kind of, that's, that's where I've been. I started with the slope sort of, I don't know. Um, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, somewhere in there. And that felt nice to me. And that that's, you know, you're kind of like quote unquote normal compression, but there's something about just the super fast mode and doing like a, I guess it does like a low ratio when you're all the way to the right. And that sounds awesome to me. So that's whenever I'm using them now, it's sort of, that's my go-to and, and, and I start that at that point. Hey everyone. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tonalux and their brand new JC37 microphone. This is a clone of the old Sony C37A tube microphone designed with producer Joe Giccarelli, who was on episode 5 of the podcast. 
The original Sony mics were used on sessions with people like Jimi Hendrix, Doors and The Wrecking Crew. In my opinion, these new China Lux microphones are great for people with small studios and home studios looking to invest in one really great tube condenser mic. Unlike a lot of tube condenser microphones, these Tonal Lux mics are incredibly versatile, can be used on guitar amps, snare, kick drum, drum overheads, vocals, and almost anything that in a lot of situations a normal tube microphone couldn't handle the sound pressure of. And because you can get these microphones right up close to a lot of sources, they're great for recording in in ideal spaces, which is what I do a lot of as I have a portable recording studio. And another great thing about them is, even though they're hand-assembled in the USA, these mics are a lot cheaper than a lot of classic tube microphones as well. You can get a pair of them for the same price that you could get a single tube microphone from a lot of other manufacturers. Please visit tonalux.com forward slash product forward slash JC37 to see more information about them. Thanks for listening, and now back to the episode. Do you use plugins much? Yeah, yeah, I've... UA, um, I mix in the box mostly now, so... Yeah, I mean, I have my my UA stuff, and and um, I, I really love. Um, there's a company called Rare Signals, and they have a they have a plugin called the Transatlantic Plate, and it's the best plate reverb plugin I've ever heard. It, I mean, it sounds like a real plate. I mean, I can almost see the uh, the metal vibrating. There's two there's two plate models. One is a Lawson, and one is um, is an EMT. And the the guy who who has the company, Brian Charles, he's from Boston. He owns the Lawson, so he's sampled. I don't know how they how they do it, but um, he sampled that. And the Lawson, he's it's the one he owns. And then the EMT, I think, was the one that was in Bearsville Studios. And he does it as differently than everybody else. And I don't I don't know the process, but he doesn't. There's selectable um, reverb times. And I think those are all sampled by themselves individually. I don't think there's any fudge factor between times. It's like that's, you know, if it's 1.2, that's the time it was sampled at 1.2. And then you move to 1.6 or 2.3, that's the time it was sampled. And it, it, it sounds fantastic. I mean, I'm pretty blown away. I use it all the time. What does your two-bus normally look like? Two-bus, um, I like to have uh, the back CQ it was one of my first things and I don't use it for, I do, I do love the EQ sound on it, but I, I use it more for the cuts. I, I, I cut off about, I don't know the numbers. I think it's like 23, 23 Hertz and 70 K. I just, to me, when you, when I chop off those, it, it, everything seems more in focus. So I start with that and then I use, um, UA, um, SSL G bus compressor, which is fantastic. I, I own uh, I own the hardware piece, and 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 I when I first got into UA, they didn't have the updated SSL. They had their the, the first version, but even the first version, I mean, I, I set my settings back and forth between the uh, the hardware and the software, and I, I honestly could not tell the difference. So, um, and then they updated it to the newer version with the um, with like the you know, side chain and all that. So, but that's, that's the one I use that comes next. And I used to use, um, the ATR one Oh two plug and I have my own alignment settings. So, um, depending on tape and speed, I've, I've kind of made my own presets of, uh, of my own alignments. But lately, instead of that, I've been using the um, Crane Song Phoenix 2. I've been really, really, really enjoying that. So that's become my tape emulation 
on my um, on my two mix. And then uh, let's see. I usually have a few things kind of um, inactive because I, I it's just choices. But uh, usually after that, it's a, you know an Oxford inflator, and um, I think that's it. But before the inflator, I'll have a Mag EQ four ready to go just in case I feel like the whole thing needs to be brighter or any dads, you know, the whole thing could use a little bit of sub. I really love that EQ. Um, yeah. And then the inflator. And I th- think that's it. If, if, if there's some distortion with the inflator every once in a while, there's a weird little thing that happens with like, I don't know if it's intermodulation distortion, but um if that's the case, then I can put it in split band mode and that will usually go away. Um, the problem with that is now you'll start getting output peaks because it treats the, the signal differently. So if that's the case and I want to keep the same type of loudness, then I'll throw some sort of limiter on the back end of that. And I don't limit too much. I just, you know, it's usually like at the most a DB. It's usually like, you know, half a DB here and there. It's just a, it's just to catch those errant, errant peaks that the inflator is letting through in that mode and if it's not in that mode then i don't need a limiter after that because it's already like it's like plenty loud i don't need it to be louder than louder than that and i think that's i think that's it what are some of your favorite electric guitar mics and techniques um well um 57 is always great i i usually I usually like to stick with one mic. I, I have a producer friend that l- loves the multiple mic thing. So I'll do that and bust them together. And, th- and that's cool too. I don't, you know, there's, that's definitely awesome, but I, I kind of like to, you know, if it's like left up to me, I, I like to just pick one and just be done with it. Um, 57s are always great. I, I, I like the, I like the sides of the cone better or, or doing like, um, you know, a 45 degree angle on the cone. I like the low end of that. I don't, I usually don't like to go right down the, you know, dust cap, but, um, so I'll kind of, I'll kind of move whatever mic I'm using over to the side, unless it's a ribbon, a ribbon I'll put over the dust cap cause it'll, it'll chill it out. But, um, so yeah, there's times where it's just a 57. Um, there are times where, you know, I will go ahead and do a 57 and a, and a rare 121 and I'll bust them together. Uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm on a console, if I'm somewhere where it's like a bunch of mic pre's and no console, I'll have to, I'll make a choice or I'll either record them both and then, you know, sum them together later. Um, but yeah, I like to bust that together and maybe put an 1176 on that. And, um, there are times where a condenser is kind of cool. There was a project recently I, I did it, Sound Emporium Studios and the two, there was two electric guitar players playing live and they've got, um, they've got these 87s that are, um, Fred Cameron, 87s. Fred Cameron was, uh, he's passed away, but he was, he was someone who, um, he modified microphones and these are hot rotted 87s. They're tube 87s. And so, um, and these seem to be a little darker from what I remember. So, uh, I put them on, you know, in front of each amp and they sounded absolutely fantastic. Um, and let me think, it's kind of, it. it's like one, two, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just a single ribbon mic and, and if I can get away with it and it, and it's the kind of song that warrants it, I'll, I'll back it up quite a bit. There was a, a project we did where I, I took a Royer and just basically backed up the Royer 
I don't know, three feet from the amp or something like that. And it sounded fantastic. It was just, uh, the amp was in its own room and it was a fairly dead room and it was nice to give, you know, give the mic some actual space. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else crazy, but yeah, that's a, that's about it. It's, it's sort of like just project dependent, I guess. Oh, there is a, you know, I completely forgot about it. I keep mentioning I keep mentioning Mic Tech because I I just I love their stuff and they they have a uh, they have a dynamic mic called a PM10 and I'll bring that with me. It it's got a 57 quality to it, but it sounds a little more three dimensional. And I put it up next to a 57 on a guitar amp, and it's it's pretty amazing. It's the 57 sounds great. It sounds like a 57. And then you bring up the the PM10 and it has that quality, but it's almost like it steps forward out of the speakers a little bit and in, in, not in an EQ way. It just kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better description, it sounds kind of three-dimensional. So I've been actually, if I can remember to bring that with me if, wherever I'm going to be, I'll, I'll uh, usually throw that on an electric guitar. I think the last thing we haven't covered is vocals. What are some of your kind of favorite vocal mics? Well, it's funny. It's like... Whatever works on the on the vocalist, it's um, you know, an SM7 is always that's that's been the mic that you know seems to always work on somebody. You know, if if you've got to do something fast, um, you know, it's always cool. I I've had it beat out, you know, gazillion dollar microphones on vocals. It just depends. Everyone is so different with with uh, vocals. I mean, you know, I had access with Ben's um, 47, which is a fantastic 47. And it, for him, it sounded awesome. Um, and, you know, sometimes you'd get someone in front of it and it would sound awful. <laughs> like, but then you'd put a, then you'd put a, um, an SM7 in front of them and it would, you know, sound fantastic. So it's just, you know, I, I, I'll, if I don't know the singer and I don't know how they're going to, you know, you know, so you set up a few mics, you know, SM7, you know, a fancy tube mic, and maybe just a regular old, um, you know, condenser like a 414, uh, and just see what see what fits in the track. Um, you know, some people have some this harmonic distortion that comes out of their mouth. I mean, so I've I've had, you know, I've I've been recording, you know, I've recorded people, or you're trying to get a sound on them. It's like, what is that? And you go out and listen to them. It's like, oh, that's coming out of your mouth. Okay, so. Uh, this tube mic is not helping that, you know, it's just sounding like it's getting, you know, it's accentuating that harmonic distortion. So that might not be the thing. We might need something more, um, you know, just in the condenser solid state thing, or just again, dynamic. It's just, yeah, that's always the, that's always the wild card. Cause it just, you never, you just never know what someone's going to do. I I'm working with this band now and, um, we were, I've been using an SM7 on him, and he sounds great. And um, on that, and we went somewhere, and they had the new reissue 67. And I was like, "Oh, cool, let's try that." And you know, put them next to each other, and it it sounded awful on him. It just really, it, you know, it's just no focus, no, no nothing, you know. And he he went in front of the the SM7, and it poked out of the track like it should, and it sounded awesome. So that's what we went with. So that's always a good that's always a good mic to have around for a lot of, for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and, and vocal is one of them. Are you generally fussy about preamps? 
Uh, no, I mean, I, you know, as long as it's, as long as it's good, I, again, I'm so used to API stuff that it just, to me, it's just like, that's, that just sounds awesome. I'm, and, 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 you know, it's got a great tone. Very cool. I, I, I love the knee stuff. Um, you know, I have a, I have a 3124, uh, set of four API mic pre's from the, from the nineties. And, um, yeah, if I'm, if I'm somewhere that doesn't have anything great, I'll bring those. Um, but yeah, it's generally like, you know, it's going to come down to the way the person sings and the microphone and, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be anything super fancy. I, I think, you know, uh, I'm happy to, um, if it's easier and the console sounds cool, it, it, even if it's a, you know, I'll just, I, I'd rather have things in front of me. You know, you, there could be some cool preamps hanging around and it's an SSL and it's like, you know, there've been times where it's like, let's just track everything through the SSL drums. I mean, I just want to have everything in front of me. If I need to EQ something, it's right there. And, uh, it sounds awesome. You know, it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying it's, um, you know, good preamps are, um, it's not important, but I, I just don't, I don't get too fussy about it. I try not to anyway. I think that's all my questions. So thank you so much for speaking with me. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me.